Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Ah, thanks guys. You're too sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we got we got some ground to cover today, so I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right in. We we uh we got a lot of ground to cover, and we got a lot of nuance along the way. You guys ready for that? Distance and nuance. That's what that's what we're going for today. So, um, over the last couple of months, you may have noticed that one of the one of the themes of uh, some of the things we've been preaching on Sunday is kind of what we've been kind of generally calling a revisiting our foundations. This was this was rooted in a a word that Lauren got from Paul Manwaring about about revisiting our foundations, kind of re re looking at some of the things that that uh, we've built ourselves on, you know, who we are, kind of reminding us of those things and. So it's kind of been some of the, the headspace that I've been in, and you, you perhaps noticed some of those themes uh, as, as we've been talking about them. Um, well, a handful of weeks ago, about, about four or so weeks ago, uh, Lauren was uh, sharing about testimony, and we had a bunch of people share testimonies up here, and she was making these uh, uh, declarative statements about the power of testimony. And that is, again, one of the foundation pieces of our, of our house. And I saw, this, uh, I saw this vision as she was making these declarations. I saw this gigantic stone just fall down and, and land uh, right over here, actually. Um, and it was big. It was a cube-shaped stone, and it was about from, like, here to about... Uh, here, so really big stone. Again, you can do the math. Cube shaped, um, and so three, three. Yep, yep, yeah. Mathematicians, so right. Uh, so <laughs> it was. Uh, you can even calculate the volume of that. But anyway, um, the and it was this beautiful, like pristine stone. You know, like like what I imagined when they were building some, uh, building the temple or building some you know great structure, like this you know well perfect carved stone. And it embossed on the top edge of it was just the word testimony. And as she spoke and made these declarative statements about the power of testimony, I saw this big hammer come down and begin to hammer this stone into the ground, and it sunk down into into the ground and it's just sitting nice and nice and flush, very, very level. You could, you'd all be very happy if you're a construction person. Um, so it was, uh, and so then uh, a couple, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago, if my math is correct, um, during worship, we were singing a song and it was, uh, it was really awesome. I, I'm not going to try to sing it because I can't sing it nearly well as it was sung, but it was about uh, some, something to the effect of the, the bridge was something like, uh, you know, no, no performance, only the blood of Jesus. It was kind of themed around that. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago when we were, we were singing that song? It was a great moment. Just, just felt awesome. And you kind of get the impression, I think Dan even got up and said this, like, oh, it feels like something's happening right now. We need to stay here and be, be in this place a little bit. And so while we were singing that song about no performance, only the blood of Jesus, I just, um, I saw this vision again of Jesus walking into the room and he was wearing this uh, robe that was covered in, in blood, in, in his blood. And he had this big smile on his face and he was dancing and spinning all in the front of the room. And as he danced, the, the, the blood from his cloak just spilled battered out and God in everyone. This is the kind of imagery that's very like comforting and meaningful to us, but it's very weird if you're not in a uh, Christian culture or a Jewish culture for that matter. But um, so I just saw that happening. And as we kind of kept entering in and leaning into this place, he started dancing more and more uh, violently. To, and there's really no other term for it because he was spinning and moving so much that it caused the ground to shake. And I even looked at the ground, it was vibrating. 
And I saw the, um, the floorboards start to rattle and snap and pop up and just kind of start tearing up. And it kind of freaked me out. Just, it, it obviously, I knew it was just a vision, but it could just, you, know, you can imagine what kind of force would be necessary to, to do something like that. And so I, I saw this happen, but the whole time he had this big, big, you know, almost goofy smile on his face. Like he was just super thrilled that this was, that this was happening. And as it just kept happening, it got where like every single floorboard had been turned up. It was like we were trying to replace something in here, and every single one has been violently, you know, to just torn up and tossed about until there were there were no boards left. And when I looked, I could see that testimony stone that had been hammered in a couple of weeks before, and I could see all the other stones right next to one another that made up the foundation of of this place. And so then at that point, Dan came up and said, hey, I feel like the Lord's really doing something. We need to stay on this and, you know, lean in here for a moment. And as we did, again, she just continued to, to dance. And I saw these, even these stones themselves start to rattle and shake and vibrate. And as they did, this sto- a stone of equal size that was right next to the testimony stone kind of rattled up. And it's quite, you can almost imagine that kind of shook up, 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 up until it popped clean out of the... Uh, out of the floor and just landed on the stage, or not not in front of the stage, rather. Um, So I I looked at this stone, and this one was not as pristine as the the testimony stone had been. This one looked like concrete, and there was kind of these little, like, kind of cracked spots that were in it, and in these cracks was sort of like this kind of darkened, sort of like, maybe mold is a little bit strong way to put it a little bit, but it was just kind of these like darkened areas. I'm not a foundation expert. I don't know if this happens in real life, so you can let me know if it does, but there was these cracks and there was these kind of uh, little bits of mold. Most of it looked good, you know, but there was these kind of little veins of, of broken spots, almost like blue cheese, not quite as much as uh, that, you know, um, that, kind of, that kind of situation. And so I looked and I asked the Holy Spirit, what, what is that? And I heard the Holy Spirit say, that is... Oh yeah, sorry, on this stone was the word performance. Performance. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, <laughs> like that. That was, a, that was a good sound, good job, you guys. <laughs> That's good, good, good response. Um, <laughs> and and uh, one side was performance, another side it said perfection. They were all words that were kind of pointing at this singular idea. Um, and I, you know, I again indicated this stone and I said, you know, what, what is that? And I heard the Holy Spirit say, it's, it's the, the, the consequence of your humanity, of your culture, and of the powers and principalities in your region. Now, I've never been to a perfect place. I don't know if you have, um, but I've never been to a perfect place. So it made sense to me that, okay, there's, there's things that would get into our, our foundation. I, and I imagine if I went to my home and checked the spiritual foundation, there'd be stuff in there that was the result of my humanity, uh, the result of the culture that I, I was raised in, and the result of powers and principalities that are, that are in my region, right? That, that seems understandable, yeah? Yeah, we doing okay? We good? Like I said, a lot of ground to cover, nuance. Um, so, and again, I, despite seeing that, it's the kind of thing that like, if you got that report at your home, like, hey, by the way, we checked your uh, foundation and it looks like blue cheese. Uh, you know, you'd be, that'd be an, uh, a report you'd be upset to have, but there was such a, a confident smile on Jesus' face that it felt fine, like it felt great. And I said, why do I, and I even kind of asked that inside myself, like, why do I feel okay about this? <laughs> um, and I just heard the Holy Spirit say it. It's because there's grace to face it. There's grace to face it. 
And then I, I heard one more thing, which was, let me see if I can quote this correctly, but the, the inability to face the consequences of your humanity is caused by a lack of integrity. I just felt this challenge inside myself of, okay, it's easy for me to look at a culture, uh, an environment, a culture, whether it be our local culture, our, our, uh, our city culture, our state culture, our, our country culture, and so on and so forth, and be like, okay, yeah, there's things in there that are not perfect, and we can measure those things and, and try to get those out of, uh, of an environment. Um, I can, you know, recognize that there's powers and principalities anywhere that try to influence the, the culture, the direction of a place, and I can try to pray against that, but I could also acknowledge that it's, it is challenging to be able to face the consequences of your humanity, yeah? But again, in that moment, I felt like a grace to do it and for the realization that being unwilling to face that is a lack of integrity. Does that make sense to you guys? So I want to talk about this a second because as I was looking at this, I, what I felt like this meant, how I interpreted this was... Uh, as a consequence of humanity, as a consequence of uh, the culture, as a consequence of powers and principalities in the region, there is to some degree a performance culture in this environment. Yeah? Now, I could probably say that to be true of just about any environment, honestly. Like, if I, if I really look at it, and we can get into perhaps why in a little bit, but I, I and so I'm, I'm willing to face that and to, to bring, uh, adjustment to that. But if we're going to do that, we need to maybe understand a little bit about what, what is a performance mentality? What is the spirit of performance? These are perhaps words you get, you hear thrown around in different ways. And I, I'm not going to give you a super refined definition, but I am going to kind of explore this idea with you guys for a little bit so that we can maybe understand it and see how we could address it. Does that, does that sound good? That makes sense? Okay. So just a couple of thoughts to get us started. Then we're going to dive into the Bible together. Um, so if there's maybe a lot of different ways to say it, but ultimately... In, in our context, in our environment, if I'm talking about a performance mentality, it would be I am trying to, through action, through my, my excellence of character, earn something, earn value. Yeah, does that make sense? I, I am valuable because I can do this, I can do that. I'm valuable because I have honed my character to do this and to do that. That is ultimately what I would say is the root of a performance mentality is I, through my effort, I can obtain value and goodness. Yeah? And so what are the consequences of that kind of thinking? Well, there's some of the normal surface ones that I think maybe a lot of us would be, would be aware of, which is that means I'm trying to earn my way towards God's presence. That means I'm trying to be the best Christian possible. That means I feel like it creates this dynamic where maybe I feel like God is this distant and judgmental person who is constantly measuring me and seeing whether I measure up. And of course, constantly disappointed by how in the ways in which I don't measure up. Now I would say in our culture, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that is an aspect of performance that we've uh, in many ways tackled head on. Would you guys say that that's true? I would say that, uh, I, and I would hope that if you've been here for a while, you have heard the message that God loves you, he, he views you as his child, his son, his daughter, and that he loves you just as you are. Of course he wants good things for you. Of course he wants you to grow in character and, and, and grow in excellence and grow in all these things, but he loves you as you are and you do not need to earn love from him whatsoever. I would imagine, especially if you hear Jen preach a few times, you're going to get that, you're going to get that message at some point. If not, you should probably listen to Jen more. Um, 
<laughs> but would you guys say that that's probably something you've, you've heard, and, it may, and maybe you're still wrestling with that and still kind of, you know, figuring that out in yourself, of course, but that's something you've heard at some point, yeah? Yeah, awesome, cool. Well, there's a more to performance than just that. <laughs> because when something is a mentality, when it's a belief system, it influences a lot of things, and it, and it can seep into all kinds of different cracks. Um, so I just want to address some of those and then go into the Bible where it talks about some of this stuff. So um, if I have a performance mentality, and I, I will just kind of st start the show with, with something up front of, in the United States, uh, performance is something we culturally value greatly. Uh, we're very proud of it. And from birth, you have been taught to have a performance mentality. I think we can all pretty easily look at that and see that to be true. Now, there are parts of that that are good and that it's good to work hard, it's good to create good things, it's good to want to do things well, but there are also negatives to that because it creates an environment where a deeply held belief is that if I am not producing, then I am not valuable. And if others are not producing, then they are not valuable. And that may or may not be God's value. Hmm. So we need to recognize when we have a discrepancy between the culture that we grew up in and God's culture. Now, we don't want to jump to conclusions because it can be easy to be just cast everything off and be like, ah, oh, that entire thing is bad, and so now I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to you know, lay on the couch and watch TV all day because I don't need to perform for love, right? You know? Now, again, that's, on the one hand, that's true. God would not love you less if you did that, but that's not perhaps his greatest hope for you. And so there, there's, it doesn't mean just abandon everything. It means, okay, I have a discrepancy between my culture and heaven's culture. And this is not something that we just freak out and just you know, uh, cast all of our beliefs into the trash. This is where we walk with the Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to, to, to correct what's, what's inside of us. But knowing that a value for performance is inherent in our culture is a helpful starting point, yeah? Now what this causes, again, I'm just gonna hit this for a little bit and we'll move forward, but this causes an environment where it's easy to believe that if things are going well in someone's life, it's because they performed well. The Bible says the opposite. It says he sends rain to fall on the righteous and the un unrighteous. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about, hey, I knew a righteous man who followed the ways of the Lord and died young and his children squandered everything that he worked for. And I know an evil man who prospered and whose children prospered. What's up with that? It's a summarization was basically what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is. <laughs> it's a big, what's up with that? It's written by early version of Jerry Seinfeld. Anyway, moving on. Um, the <laughs> Hopefully it's not offensive, but the... Um, so it, it can, having a performance mindset rooted into this can cause us to believe that good things happen to people who do good and bad things happen to people uh, who do bad, which can build a belief of if something bad happened to you, it's because you did something bad and perhaps you deserve that. And if something good is going on with you, we can have a presupposition that, that person is of high character and is good or is doing something right or is doing something well, and that may not be the case, you know? So again, it's kind of identifying some of these things so that we can see them. It can create an environment where we judge ourselves and like, oh, I gotta do better, I gotta work harder, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. It can also create an environment where we are put those same demands on leaders, on people around us. Hey, you're not living up, you're not doing this well, you're not doing this excellently, you know? It's really funny, uh, I, I, 
was a missionary kid growing up, so I lived in Europe for a while. I did some short-term missions as, as well. And it's so funny because um, someone walking into a store and, you know, being in a, the United States and being maybe offended that they don't let you have free real frills on your drink, that someone doesn't bring you something right away, that someone doesn't take care of every your want and need as you're in this store, that's the kind of service we expect, right? If you go into, uh, say, uh, Paris and go to a restaurant, they're mad at you for uh, asking for a free additional drink, demanding your server come right now. Why aren't you taking care of my drink? Why can't you take care of my water? Because their concept of what service is, is different. It's not quite as much rooted in the performance culture. I'll be available after the service if you want to get upset with me about those dynamics, but... Again, I'm not saying automatically demanding good service is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when performance is a core value of the culture that you grew up in, you have to be attentive to where that matches the Holy Spirit and the culture of the kingdom and where it does not. And you have to recognize that your instinct is going to be tainted by the values that you grew up with. And and tainted by kingdom versions of those values, and that'd be tainted in a good way, obviously, or tainted by imperfect, non-kingdom versions of those values. Does that make sense? And so we need to hold those things and be attentive to those things and recognize that something might feel wrong, not because God is giving you discernment that it's wrong, but because you grew up with something being normal. Does that make sense? So again, all I'm trying to do here is just stir that little pot a little bit, and I'm going to walk away from that for a second. Um, let's explore this in the scripture and explore some of the consequences of what this looks like, because again, we demand those, that kind of excellence from leaders, which also creates a situation where if someone is uh, good, that means that they're all good, because everything they do is good, and their performance is good, and that's where we this idea of kind of um, creating heroes, and hero worship is, is a big part of our culture as, as well. I'm not just talking about the popular like Marvel superheroes thing, but, but creating stories about great men and great women and how awesome they are and what great leaders they were, it's pretty foundational to our culture and to, often to our values. Does that, does that make sense? And the stories usually come, like, come with, look how great this person's character was, look how well they performed, look at all these things that they did, look at all these things that they accomplished. This means that they were good. Maybe we wouldn't say it that explicitly, but it's something we feel on an instinctual level. At least I do. Does that make sense? Now, I've noticed, if you've been in church for a while, you may have noticed, we do this with people in Scripture. We're like, oh, the great heroes of the faith, the great heroes of Scripture. Man, King David, what a wonderful guy. You know, he, 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 it was his idea to bring the temple, and God loved that idea so much. He said, yeah, let's do that. You know, he said, oh, me and my buddy, we're going to go take this hill. Rah, rah, let's go take this hill. He was also a murderer. Um, uh, an adulterer, uh, he was often corrected by God. We talk about some of the big moments where he was corrected by God, but he was corrected by God frequently. His, again, our performance mentality comes in here a little bit of like, ah, oh, his kids didn't turn out super great. You know, one of them got stuck in a tree, one of them, you know. <laughs> it's funny if you know that story. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, Justin. <laughs> One, one, you know, one of them was the wisest man you know, who ever lived, but also uh, you know, brought idolatry into the kingdom of Israel that led to ruin. You know? And so 
I, so I want to explore a, a character in the scripture and, and explore a passage of scripture that is about this very thing, this idea of a performance perspective. Now, I, I would like to suggest that um, much of the Old Testament is rooted in attacking this very idea. And it's worthwhile paying attention to this because um, it cost the Israelites uh, quite a bit missing it. So if you would, I want you to turn here just so you know where it is in your Bible um, or your app. Uh, Turn to Judges 6. Judges 6. This is the story of Gideon. How many of you have ever heard of Gideon before? Gideon's a cool dude, right? <laughs> Got you all scared now. He's a, he's a hero of the faith, right? So give me, give me some things. What, what, what's, what's a Gideon thing? Tell me about what, what happens in the Gideon story. One highlight. Fleece, yeah, we got the fleece. We got that fleece. He, he laid out a fleece. And he's like, hey, if this is really you, if you're really calling me, I'm gonna lay this fleece out. And you know, if there's dew on it in the morning, then that's great. Uh, hey, come one more time. What if there's not dew on it? That would be equally impressive. It could have just been a weird wind that made that dew happen, you know? Um, so the fleece, what else? What, what else is a Gideon thing? What else happens in that story? Army was reduced. His army got shrunk over the course of time. He gathered this big army to fight the Midianites. We're gonna go over the whole story in just a minute, but what's some more Gideon things that stick out? Broke these, uh, he pulled down the altar of Baal. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to, or Baal, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Holy, Holy Spirit, warm as a glove. Yes, that's addressed later in scripture. That's an excellent one. Low self-esteem. Yes, yes. All right, so I don't want you to answer this because I've already uh, tainted your perspective and made you scared of answering this question. But is Gideon a good guy or a bad guy? <laughs> yup is a good answer. Yup is a good answer. But this is someone who is called by the angel of the Lord. As we know, I'm going I'm to summarize the story. I wanted you to know where this is in the Bible. Um, most times when you get taught Gideon, you get taught uh, the story of Gideon from Judges 6 to Judges 7. But the story of Gideon continues into Judges 8 and a little bit into Judges 9. We usually skip that part. Kind of the same way that when I was a kid, we skipped the end of the book of Jonah as well, which is unfortunately the most important part of the story. Um, and the same is true here. Uh, so I will say this, for those of you who are people who study the Bible, which I hope is all of you, um, a, a thing that is a bad habit that a lot of us do is we look at a particular narrative or a piece of a narrative within scripture and try to derive the meaning of just that. Like for, this is actually a wonderful example. Gideon the fleece, you know, he's called by the angel of the Lord. He said, hey, you're gonna go fight the Midianites who have been oppressing Israel. And you know, you're gonna go fight them. Oh Lord, I'm nervous about that. Uh, you know, what if, uh, okay, I'll tell you what, if you're really calling me, I'm gonna put this fleece out. And if there's dew only on the fleece, but not on the grass in the morning, I'll know that you're with me. And that, ha and that happens, he's like, awesome, sweet. Let me ring this out. Hey, hate to bother you, but um, you know, that could have just been some weird thing. What if there was do everywhere else, but not on the fleece? Then I would definitely, definitely know that you called me. And that very thing happens where there's no do on the fleece, but there's do on all the rest of the grass. That's awesome. We've heard that story a bunch of times, right? So was that a good thing that he did or a bad thing that he did? Now I got taught in such a way where I got the impression that was a good thing that he did. Like, okay, he, he put out, he, he was not sure if he was hearing the Lord's voice. And so he kind of tested this a little bit. Now I remember in the back of my mind when I was hearing this story, isn't there like a don't, don't test the Lord your God somewhere before this at some point, you know? Um, so again, I'm gonna, we're just gonna run through this story. I'm, uh, you, please read this yourself later, but 
Um, so the, this story starts in, in Judges uh, 6, verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years. So this foreign land comes in, is taking over, and is oppressing Israel because they have turned themselves over to, to foreign gods. Um, we can just focus in on this story, but let's just take a few seconds and look at the wider narrative, not only of uh, Gideon, but of the book of Judges and of Scripture. So God chooses these people. He appoints them as a chosen people, and he engages in this relationship. Here's the covenant that I'm having with you guys, and here's the terms of this covenant that we are having together. One of those important ones is you shall have no other gods before me. Keep messing that one up a lot. Um, in fact, if you study the prophets, um, the three most common pieces of feedback that the prophets had for the people of Israel is they chose other gods or, I, or, or added gods to their pantheon that they were worshiping. Um, it was that they uh, put too much faith in military might, that they tried to build up a strong army, which God told them not to do because he was their protector, not their own might. And the other third piece of feedback they most commonly got was not taking care of the poor, was not taking care of the poor on a societal level. These are the three pieces of feedback that are most commonly put forth to the people of Israel throughout all the prophets. Read all of them to find it yourself. Um, <clears throat> and so this is one of those situations. And in this time, Israel had no kings. Instead, God appointed these people supernaturally. They called them judges. And the book of Judges is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. So narratively, it is a tra tragedy or what you would call in literature is a fall from grace. It is a story of failure. It starts out okay, and things get worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, it's important we recognize it as such because otherwise we will just pick little things from here and take these as cool stories of these awesome heroes that God appointed to save the day and not recognize the pattern of they fail more intensely as the story goes on every single time. And that's the, that's the shape of this story that we're in and the shape of this journey of the covenant uh, between Israel and God. Does that make sense to you guys? It's important that we know that. It's important that we know there's a fall from grace story. Um, I'm not recommending this whatsoever, but this is an, a good comparison. Um, there's this television program called Breaking Bad that none of you have watched because it's, uh, you know, very naughty. Um, but that is, a, that is a fall from grace story. That is about someone making bad choices and that getting worse and worse and that bringing destruction to their life and to the lives of others. If you want to see a little foreshadowing to where I'm going with this, most people think some of the characters in that are really cool because we like heroes. And so even when a story is about a fall from grace, our instinct to find heroes and our inability to integrate the negative side of a person with the good side of a person makes it very difficult for us to either to recognize and be able to experience. This is a story about a fall from grace. So this is the story that we're in right now. And this is the midpoint. This is actually the tipping point of the book of Judges. The first three sections before this, you got Deborah, you got some of the other Judges. And these are very heroic. These are a little bit briefer. And these are about, you know, Israel's oppressed. God appoints someone. They rise up and they bring, bring goodness and they lead the people of Israel back to, back to only serving their, their God and, and conquering whoever came against them. Everything goes pretty great from this. Gideon is the tipping point. 
Gideon, as we'll find out, is a little bit good and a little bit bad. The one after him is even worse. The one after him is even worse. And it ends in a very dark place. That's the story of the book of Judges. Um, and so we have Gideon who's called out. He's hiding. He's cowardly. He's, there. He's, he's trying to sneak some wheat away from the Midianites who have been saying, hey, give us all your food. Give us all your wheat. Um, if, if you've seen A Bug's Life, it's basically the same thing. Um, and... <laughs> Um, and he's trying to secretly sneak some, some wheat out of, of this place um, so they won't catch him getting this wheat so he can feed his family. You know, Angel of the Lord shows up and said, hello, mighty warrior. Hey, I am appointing you to defeat the Midianites. And he's like, bah. and they have this discussion. They're not unsure. He's a little unsure about it. And he says, you know, hey, if you could just get, stay here a minute, angel of the Lord. Um, I'm, if you could just give me a sign, I'm going to get this sacrifice. And if the sacrifice you know, happens in such and such a way, then I will know that you have heard that, that I am chosen by you. So, oh, wait, the fleece isn't the first time that he has this little requirement. No. Um, comes up, the sacrifice happens just as he expected, and then, of course, the angel of the Lord disappears right in front of his eyes, and he says, whoa, that was the angel of the Lord. How about that? Um, and this angel of the Lord told him in his village there was a, uh, uh, a statue that was set up to Baal, who was a foreign god. He said, hey, go in the day and tear down that statue in front of everyone. I want you to show that you will not stand for this in your time. And he says, okay. I'm kind of scared of my dad because, uh, you know, he's part of the people that put that there. And so uh, let me go at nighttime and kind of sneak over and I'll yank it down. That's, you know, it's down either way, right? That's fine, you know. And so he, he sneaks at nighttime because he's scared. This is all in the story. And he pulls down the, the altar to ball. Everyone is understandably upset. And who did this? And of course, he gets caught immediately. It's like, oh, I was Gideon, you know. Everyone's upset with him and he runs off. He's like, ah, oh, my, my perfect plan did not work. And so then he leaves, and then the Lord says, hey, no, I want, you to, I want you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. You're going to get an army, and you're going, to, uh, you're going to defeat these guys. And this is when the whole fleece story happens. He's like, oh, if it's really you, this happens. If it's really you, this happens. Now, the message that's being told by this is that Gideon is mistaken in not trusting the appointment of the Lord, <laughs> And that he is needing affirmation over and over again, these signs over and over and over again. And so if you hear or you find yourself saying, I'm putting out a fleece before the Lord, realize that you were following, following something that was a mistake. Just FYI. Um, in the context of the story, that's what this is. Um, and so... He does that, the fleece happens, like, okay, great, I'm going to go around, I'm going to rouse a bunch of people. Again, I don't know why the movie reasons <laughs> things are happening, but you know in Braveheart, they're all running across the hills and they're gathering the clans, you know, it's basically the same kind of thing. They're gathering all of the tribes, people, hey, we're going to go fight the Midianites, and he gets like 22,000 guys. He's like, hey, this is pretty good. This, is, this went better than I think. Wow, the Lord's favor is really shining upon us. Maybe we can actually do this. And the Lord's, <laughs> I, love, I love the way it's, it's uh, said, said here, um, uh, the Lord said, then the Lord said to Gideon, uh, the people are still too many. Um, and so verse is 22,000 and, and the Lord says, hey, tell everyone who's scared to go home. And so a bunch of people leave, a bunch of people leave. And then the, that's when the Lord says, the people are still too many. There's still too many people. And Gideon's like, that's not the problem that I was seeing with what just happened. Uh, um, and so, hey, have them drink water. The ones who drink this way, choose those people so on and so forth. It keeps reducing the, armor, the armory down. So the, the symmetry of the story 
is God tells Gideon who he is, and he says, let me test this. God tells him to do something. He says, well, let me do it this way. God says, hey, you're going to do this now. And he says, well, let me test this. And so God, in return, tests Gideon and says, okay, what if I made your army this size? Okay, what if I made your army this size? What if I made your army this size? And so then Gideon gets all the way down, and he's still scared, and he's like, all right. You know, I imagine the Lord says it this way. He's like, all right, go down to the camp over there. Sneak down, and if, you, if you're feeling scared, go listen. And he hears that a person in the camp had a dream about Gideon and about this giant uh, roll coming down and knocking over the camp. And Gideon realized, like, oh, man, the Lord is with me. They, they really have to do this. And that's when he goes, and he gets the... Um, he goes, gets the pots, gets the swords, gets the torches. You guys heard this part of the story? And we, we run into some, a bit of foreshadowing once again. He gives the people instructions. We're going to go around. We're going to smash these pots. We're going to raise these torches. And then what I want you to say is for the Lord and for Gideon. That's foreshadowing, in case you didn't know. Now, this goes great. There's confusion in the camp. They all just stab each other, and the army is defeated, and it's so awesome. It's great. And then he goes on. He fights another battle. And then uh, Gideon was not instructed by the Lord to do this, goes back and gets in an argument with the other people of Israel who didn't come with him, who did not join his army. There's a conflict, and Gideon and his people kill them. Kill a bunch of Israelites. They usually skip this part of the story when they tell it to you. Just ends with the torch thing and hooray, he won. Um, and so Gideon then said, and then so after they slaughtered them, all the people who were oppressed and were angry at those people for not going after going after these Midianites said, Oh, okay, Gideon, you should rule us. You should be our you should be our leader now. And Gideon very humbly says, you know, um, no, 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 you know, the, I'm not going to be your ruler. The Lord's going to be your ruler. But then the very next verse is in uh, uh, ver- chapter 8, verse, uh, where is this? Verse 23. He said, hey, no, no, don't worry. The, um, you know, God's the one who delivered us from Midian, and he's going to be your ruler, not me. And then verse 23 says, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Over you. Yet... He then said, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from this plunder. So they had all these gold earrings. And so he took all of this gold, he melted it down into an ephod, which is like a, what, a, what a priest would wear. And the end of this little section of the story, it's uh, verse 27, says, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Oprah. Not Winfrey, but the uh, city. Um, <laughs> Pop cultural references are happening all on their own these days. But, um, but all Israel committed an infidelity with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. <clears throat> so this ephod that Gideon created ended up being treated as an idol, and people actually worshipped it after he died. And that was the beginning of what directly led to them going, seeking foreign gods after he died. And so there was 40 years of peace while he was alive, but then he died, and immediately afterwards, Israel went into the same cycle, and it continued to decline after that. So even though, darn, even though Gideon had this attitude of like, it's not me, it's the Lord, 
he still wanted it to be by his might a little bit. He wanted proof. He wanted evidence. He wanted, uh, okay, well, yeah, okay, this makes sense. This is the way that God's going to accomplish this. Is he's gonna, we're we're going to gather a whole bunch of people. We're going to have this big army. That's going to be so awesome. And God's saying, no, 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 this is not my way. This, this, this is not the way that I asked you to do it. This is not the way that I want to do it. And the fruit of this was temporary peace and temporary victory that led to uh, worse conditions followed by worse conditions. And the judges that follow Gideon, their character is even worse. And the last one in the Bible is Samson, whose character was really, really distorted and caused a lot of problems. You know, he had that nice little happy redemption story at the end thing, but um, uh, still did great harm to the people of Israel. You guys never heard that whole story before? <laughs> maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but... The point is this, is that this is actually literally a story about hero worship causing destruction in an environment. It's the, the attitude of Gideon inadvertently elevating himself above the others led to the cycle of false uh, idol worship that happened afterwards. Um, the root of a performance culture, though it manifests many different ways, is built in. I can do this with my effort, my character, my ability, my intelligence. And the message all throughout scripture, and you don't need to, once you have this framework, you don't need to look very hard to find it, is no, guys, we're doing it my way, says the Lord. <laughs> over and over and over again. And again, we need to recognize that we are wired to celebrate our own effort and the effort of others which is not wrong in and of itself. It is not wrong to celebrate effort. It is not wrong to celebrate people doing good things. It's not wrong to want to do good things. It's not wrong to believe that God wants you to prosper. But when that is attached to a belief system that is rooted in performance, it it gives us a measuring stick to judge one another and ourselves that is not from heaven. Does Does that make sense? It causes us to even read the Bible and create heroes when part of the beauty of scripture is that there's only one unflawed person in the entire book. (laughs) And it's essential that that is how we see it because it is is blatantly presented that way. But our, our bias will kind of polish away people into good guy and bad guy category. We put Gideon in the, good, uh, the, the flawed good guy category. We put David in the flawed good guy category. But so many of these people were not, it, even we in studying these people cannot face the consequences of their humanity because the consequences were dire. And if we can't face it in them, it'll be difficult for it to, us to face it in ourselves. Does that make sense? I want to share one more story. Um, so uh, if you've ever talked with me for any length of time or gotten to know me a little bit, you'll know that one, one fascinating uh, feature of my personality is I go through seasons of uh, tremendous uh, self-doubt. Uh, I, uh, that's just something that I, I do sometimes. And uh, I remember at one point I was, um, so I have uh, five kids. I don't know if you know that. Um, and I've always wanted to be a really good dad. You know, I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good father. I want to do as well as, you know, as, well as I possibly can because who, who doesn't want to do that, you know? Um, and so one day I was sitting there and I was feeling a bunch of self-doubt about my quality as a father, you know. And again, uh, how many of you are, are fathers in here? 
I'm not going to have you raise your hands for the second one, but at some point, I'm sure you have performed your fatherhood in, in such a way that you, are, you didn't like, or that you might look back and be like, oh, I could have done that better, you know. Um, <clears throat> and I was in a time of reviewing that over and over and over again. And I was just trying to, you know, measure up myself. I was measuring my performance as a, as a father. And it's tricky because I, that's not the hardest way to measure performance as far as like what it, this has direct effect on my, on my kids. It has measurable effect on them. And is this good? Is this bad? Could this be better? Is this good for the average of this, of this season, of this time? But again, all of these ways of thinking are rooted in a performance evaluation system of am I good compared to my era? Am I better than this person? Am I better than that person? All of these very destructive ways of thinking about yourself and your environment. Um, and so uh, I asked, is it remember, nuance was one of the words we talked about? Remember that? Okay. So I asked the Holy Spirit a very foolish question. Hey, how am I doing? <laughs> what would you rate me on the fatherhood scale? <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way I framed the question. And he said something, and I want you to hear the nuance in this once we get to the end, so... <laughs> I said, how am I doing as a father? <laughs> and he said, you are failing in ways so spectacular and so complete that even if I explain them to you, you would not even be able to understand them. Why do I feel like Bill Johnson's just gonna hit me on the head from somewhere right now? <laughs> no. Okay, nuance, roll with me. <laughs> he said, you, you're, you're incapable of even knowing how much you're failing. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> Is it like a C minus or a? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he said, <clears throat> I didn't choose you as their father because you're the best father. He said, I chose you because I chose you. And I chose you because I love you. If you have a performance mentality, it is impossible to face the consequences of your humanity. Because to be loved, you need to be performing. We are all realistic enough to not assume that we're performing perfectly, with perhaps a few exceptions. <laughs> But if you ask people, they've done this a lot of surveys, if you ask people how well they did any given task, people generally aim at about 80%. And if you look at the actual results, they give themselves around an 80, you know, whatever that is. And if you look at the actual results, they vary across the spectrum from one to a thousand as far as like, you know, actual quality by whatever measurement. The point is that when you have a performance mentality, you need yourself to, to perform to be okay. And you need yourself to be doing okay to be okay. This actually shields you from feedback that would save your life and change your family history. This shields you against hearing the truth. 
the only way to experience that truth is to experience a God who chose you while you were still yet a sinner. <laughs> the only way to carry that kind of love is to experience that level of acceptance. But living in a performance mentality actually shields us from experiencing that kind of love. It forces us into a mindset that says, I'm doing all right though. I'm doing all right though, because we need that to be true. Otherwise we are worthless, we are valueless, we are empty and we are despicable. But that's not the story as represented by the scripture. We almost need a constant level of our ego being built up because we need to hear we're performing well. That means you have a deeply rooted performance mentality. And I know I just hit 90% of you because it hit 90% of me. And so, the only, like I said, the only way to heal this is to see a father who accepts you, is, is to be able to have the courage to face the consequences of your humanity. So after he said that, wonderful assessment. <laughs> he said, Blake, you are incapable of being a good enough father to create a situation where your children do not need a savior. <laughs> the opposite of a performance mentality is being dependent upon God. About, about measuring things by his way, of recognizing that we need him, that we need him. And it is of his design that we need him. And any time, and, and you know, unfortunately, the product of a performance mentality like the one that is very normal in American culture is a reality where we don't need God all that much. That is a constructed consequence of the reality of a performance culture. Because if you face your need for God, you will face all the ways that your actions unintentionally have caused harm, have caused pain, have caused destruction. But I was trying my best. It's not even close to good enough. It's not even close to good enough. Thankfully, it's not about being good enough. This, and this, again, like, is also balanced so frequently in Scripture, is that this is not an excuse to be like, well, nothing matters then, and I can't do anything whatsoever. No, 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 no. That is why Jesus came. That is why he provided grace. That is why he provided the ability uh, to <laughs> provide us with ability that we could not have on our own. And the reason there are so many warnings against pride in scripture is again, it's what insulates us from receiving grace, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> so if you would just uh, stand where you are, I'm gonna pray for you guys. <laughs> so when I saw that stone you know, riddle out of the ground, Jesus had the biggest grin on his face. He was so excited. <clears throat> so I'm gonna pray a dangerous prayer. You can uh, reject it inside yourself if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to ask the Lord reveal to you the consequences of your humanity. What does this mean? This means that people are going to give you feedback. This, this, this means that people are going to let you know how what you have done has affected them, even when your intentions were good. And that you are not going to be able to look back and see how you could have done better or done differently because you couldn't have done better. <laughs> but that is what, connects us with our need for God. 
that, that reality of the powerlessness that we have, the reality of our desperate need for him. And I, 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 again, I warn you, our culture is almost, a large percentage of our culture is designed to insulate us from that bad feeling, to, to hide us from that bad feeling. And so this is very uh, antithetical to, our, to the way we've been trained from childhood is to be able to willing to face it. But let me tell you what's gonna happen is that when you face it with him in the room and experience that you can make horrible mistakes that have terrible consequences and see that you are still a loved self, <laughs> that, that seeing the way that he loves you gives you the capacity to love you in the midst of that. And that will connect you with the grace that you need to change, to be more like your heavenly father. Does that make sense? So Father, we just ask, not by our own judgment, not by our own measurement, not by our own assessment, not by our own self-analysis, not by the analysis of any standard but yours, Lord. We ask that you would reveal to us the consequences of our humanity, that we would see areas that we have caused pain, that we would be able to face those, that we would have the integrity to recognize that even when our intentions are perfect, are, 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 are good, are kind, that we're still capable of missing the mark, of, of causing harm, of causing pain, of causing all kinds of things that, and, and even if we can look back and see how we couldn't have done better, we just acknowledge that that, even that way of thinking of I could, how could I have done better is rooted in the performance mentality, is rooted in that. And so Lord, we ask that you detangle us from this way of thinking, detangle our value system, our self-measuring system, our, our, the way we assess ourselves. Instead, let us entangle ourselves, attach ourselves to your assessment of us, to your view of us that is rooted in a love that can love the sinner, that can love someone who has caused harm, and it can still choose all of these judges, all of these kings, all of these prophets, all of these disciples that are in this book, even though they are not perfect people. And so, Lord, we ask that, you would, that we would be more acquainted with your grace in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.